Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to Manufacturing Hub. If you're new here, welcome. If you have been here before, welcome back. Uh, today, as we go through this, uh, we've got Joseph coming on. If you are new here, our general conversation is an open conversation. Uh, if you guys have questions, please feel free to go ahead and drop those questions in the comments. We will do our very best in order to uh, in order to make sure that those comments are read and we'll go ahead and bring them into the show. Um, having said that, I will go make uh, make the comment. If you guys are going to be at Automate starting Monday next week, uh, May 22nd, Vlad and I will be there. We're going to be with the Phoenix Contact booth uh, for a good chunk of Monday afternoon along with Sesame. That is booth uh, 6208. We'll be with Festo on Tuesday afternoon, booth 1026, and be with our folks at Siemens who are sponsoring this episode or sponsoring this episode and this theme um, on uh, which is booth number 3618 on Wednesday. We'll be there all day on Wednesday. Our show next week will be a live show uh, from well for, from some sort of this massive Siemens booth that uh, that we are expecting. Uh, on Wednesday afternoon. So we're very excited for that. If you guys aren't going to be able to catch it live, um, remember Vlad and I will be doing uh, live recaps every day, hopefully live from the show. If we don't have good enough internet to get out from the show, uh, we will go through the process of going, shooting those and going ahead and posting it shortly after, uh, shortly after the, the three o'clock hopeful time that we're going to go ahead and do that. I will mention uh, some of our other friends are going to be at Automate. Uh, Copia, which is episode, uh, which is booth 444. Um, we had Adam Gluck, co-founder or founder of uh, Copia, all the way back on episode 28. I bring that up because if you guys are going to enjoy this episode with Joseph, I've got a strong feeling you'll introduce, you will enjoy the basically introduction to DevOps that we had with uh, Adam all the way back almost 100 episodes ago which is uh, which is absolutely crazy but without further ado um everyone officially welcome to manufacturing hub i'm dave this guy down here is vlad we are continuing our efficient engineering series again thank you to siemens for going ahead and sponsoring this and we have joseph Beitzel from software defined automation whose name i hopefully did not butcher too badly um as our guest today joseph thank you for being here welcome Thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Vlad. Thank you so much for taking the time, Joseph, and joining us today. I know you have a very interesting background, and I want to get into software-defined automation. But before we get there, could you give us a little bit of a synopsis? How, do you get how did you get started in automation and ultimately walk us through to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Austrian. And, um, I started with automation in going into school for industrial electronics when I was 14 to 19. Uh, it was in Salzburg, which is very close to a company called BNR. So I actually grew up with building industrial electronics, programming, CNC machines, and industrial controllers. Eventually went to university, studied a bit computer science. Um, and then um, I went to Siemens, um, sponsor of that show. Fantastic time there. And I had the privilege to work a lot in what's now called digital industries, uh, from identifying and buying, integrating industrial software companies into uh, this new entity, but also really on a fa uh, uh, factory automation side, especially in controllers in China and so on. Uh, I then was asked by Amazon Web Services, hey, wouldn't it be interesting to kind of come over, see the cloud and uh, help us build up an ecosystem. That's what I did. I then 
build up the ecosystem for industrial software companies. It's basically from CAD to PSC, from Autodesk to Mitsubishi and everything around. Yeah, so fantastic time. And uh, yeah, we achieved quite some um, um, achievements with our partners to help them bring to the cloud. Went then to Microsoft Azure into the product group for industrial IoT and then founded software-defined automation. I'm curious, I have a number of questions for you, Joseph, but the transition you know, from factory automation into the cloud, how did that happen? Was that something that you were maybe looking into? Is that something that you had the foresight to see like this is coming into manufacturing or was that maybe like a new technology that was exciting at the time? What was, what was that maybe learning uh, curve like also? And the learning curve was very steep. And um, I, I'm an industrial engineer computer scientist by education, that, that always fascinates me. Manufacturing is a roughly a third of what mankind does to produce value. Yeah? And technology that makes it better helps everyone. Yeah? And fantastic time at Siemens, what I found in, in cloud, and this was kind of also the start of my beginning to think someone needs to, to kind of uh, do something different here, is what, what I've seen is that in uh, general factory automation, um, there is a lot of functionality that's built on existing stacks. So but what we see is all the controllers, controllers are now massively powerful uh, systems. You can run AI inferences on it. They can house, multi they run multiple hundreds uh, of hundred, millions of lines of code, I would say. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But they are still administrated in a pattern of the 90s. Yeah, with Windows applications and so on. When I then came to the cloud, to those companies that I just mentioned is, everything is software defined. Yeah, if you have a data center, it is not like you go somewhere, you do not even know where it is. It is like you have entities, you can either administer them in the administration shell or console, how it's called, or you can code it. So you can code infrastructure. We've shown this also to clients. So you can code infrastructure of a blue chip company and it spins up in 30 minutes. Yeah? That's the equivalent of spinning up a whole automation system of a factory that normally takes around six to eight months in a couple of minutes. And, and that's always has fascinated me. We've then worked with a couple of customers, did also some tests in AWS and um, um, with, with programming um, or running Google robot with, with the edge hardware, uh, but still, um, there is also the need for the PC, there's the need for a vendor that really supports you for the global network and so on. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And what, what, what I now do with, with, with the company and with my fantastic colleagues is to exactly find a way to take the people that rely on PCs, that are, their job is at risk if the industrial control system does not continue to do what it should do, but give them the tools any cloud programmer would expect when he basically goes to work every day. And let me ask you, like, on that same point, and maybe a, a difficult question, but why do you think our industry is so, I, I want to say, like, stuck and not looking for better ways to optimize how we deploy things? Because I, I certainly think that there's those best practices you mentioned on the software side that are very well understood. But, and you're probably having a lot of the conversations, you know, with end users about this as well. So I'm curious what your uh, experience has been, but is it a lack of maybe understanding? Is that a lack of technologies that are just not in place? Is it a lack of, you know, the right people in the right organizations? Like what, what is your feeling 
why it's a, it's a slower adoption, if I may, in uh, manufacturing. So I think there's just two components that I see. The one thing is people in manufacturing are just generally very busy. It's not seldom that we are on a call with an automation engineer that starts to use our software or, and then the, the call is interrupted. We just had this last year, uh, last week with uh, one of our customers story. Let's stop now. We have an emergency. Let's talk tomorrow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. And then if you have a system that runs well and these automation systems, it's also important to say they are extremely specialized computers. Yeah, they run really, really well. Sometimes you might not question what you um, uh, what you have uh, right now. What plays now into the change is surprisingly demography. Uh, and why do I say this? Because we did when when we looked into um, this, how can we build a software-defined automation system? Um, we looked at the demography out of automation. Uh, engineers in North America's public data, you can look at different portals. We found out that only 8% are in their 20s. Yeah? That means that new people come to industrial automation with a different paradigm. They say, okay, I want, where can I commit my code? Yeah? Where is the version management system? Where can I deploy? How do I code and script my infrastructure? So this is an agent of change, definitely. To your earlier point, um, yeah, why is the industry uh, has the industry not moved? We collaborate very, very well with a lot of automation vendors. And I think it's just automation, uh, industrial automation is still growing at around three to 4%. It is a growing uh, technology. And from a lot of the big customers, they get a lot of specific uh, feature requests, how to kind of make the existing systems better. I think as long as you have that and you have a good business, it's absolutely not natural to listen to your existing customers. But I think the change right now, a um, demography, there's other things like uh, we might need to bring, if you like it or not, manufacturing back from Asia to Europe and to the US. That means we need to build more and more factories, but we do not have the time and we do not have the people as we see. So, and if we stay with existing technology, and it's not going to happen and not going to happen is not an option and therefore we do what we do yeah so there's external pressures i, I like that point I, I really like that last point especially joseph definitely agree dave what are your thoughts yeah i guess i love that i love that concept of the future joseph i know you've been working on this for a number of years with software defined automation and, and probably even before that and i love the concept of hey, if we can go spin up a Fortune 500 company's infrastructure in 30 minutes, why does it take six to eight months to, to go build the automation infrastructure of a manufacturing facility? What have you seen uh, client-wise? Have you seen more people looking to adopt this over the last couple of years? Uh, yeah, I guess. Have you seen more people looking to adopt this style and, and new technologies over the last few years? And what, what is your projection for one, I don't know, everyone is going to be going down this path. Um, let me answer in a couple of dimensions if that's okay. I think it would be a gradual shift. Yeah. And as I see all those PLCs, yeah, we are frequently get asked, will those PLC be, be, be abundant in 2024? I would say no. So nine, only one to 2% of manufacturing capacities is built new per year. So. First of all, if you want, if change comes quicker, then a couple of decades we need to move quicker. This is what, what, what we call 
PLC ops, you know, automation ops. We need to find a way to make those PLCs behave like software assets where you can deploy automatically. Yeah? Just as an example, in German automotive client, we have one PLC update on average is counted one person, one uh, hour. Yeah? If you multiply this by a couple of thousand PLCs in a plant, you exactly end up with a couple of days if you have a bunch of uh, PLC engineers. So what we do is we, we automate the deployment. So we can do this in a couple of minutes, but we can do it infinite number of PLCs in a couple of minutes. Yeah? And this is what, what is the management and that helps right now. That's super important. So our clients run existing manufacturing facilities. They run it on a certain stack. They say, we don't have enough people. We want the access control. We want a secure single source of truth of all the files. Um, and that's the first step that we see. The next step that we then see is that people say, okay, if I have all files there, I still have this plethora of IDE versions. Um, sometimes people say, I, I don't have laptops that have the capacity to have all those virtual machines that I need for the versions of IDEs of one single vendor. Yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what this is what we see. So we help them to run the IDEs in the cloud. So uh, that is a huge benefit. There's also a benefit because people can, in, we have a customer that, that had a shift model um, in the pandemic where they say, okay, 50% is here, 50% is there. If the guy that will have the version of the IDE on the laptop at home, a week long, there would be no change because that week was the off week for that. So, and, and in, 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 in the system, and that sounds really ridiculously simple that we build, you can do it from the iPad. You can install Tier Portal, any other IDE from the iPad. That, that adds also, frankly, and that's maybe a bit of a personal thing, that adds work quality, uh, um, life quality to the automation engineers. Automation engineers are extremely high qualified individuals. They suffer a lot. They have a lot of passion. And whatever we can do to make their life easier, to have them spend more time with family, we do. And that's something that really drives me to work every day. I've seen, if you, if you now look at um, what does a data scientist earn, how much kind of you believe they are, that's a, a very important uh, trade. But if automation engineers stop working or are not motivated or have challenges, our factories shut down. We don't have the goods in our store. So, and I think they just deserve tools that we are able to build. Yeah? Um, coming back to the to your uh, to your question, once you have the management of existing PLCs, we also add version management. We focus very much on very simple version management. Oh, here's a file. What is in the file? What are the function blocks? Double click, see it without the need for a proprietary ID. Look at the differences. We have a client that says, hey, I want a mail to the new shift leader at the beginning of every shift, what exactly changed in which PLC program? Because PLCs are actually um, updated very often. The higher you go in management, the higher you would think PLCs are never updated. On, on, or people think, in reality, all the time, in every shift, something breaks, I don't have the same drive, I take another drive, I update the PLC program. I need some data from OPC away out of the PLC. That's an that's a PLC update. So that's what we see. And here also, we are very simple. We have a very simple version management system that runs across vendors. That's also something that we see. For us, a backup, a Siemens, a Rockwell PLC all looks the same in the management 
and also in the um, uh, in the version management. And the last part is the virtualization of PLCs. This is largely also driven, or the, the attention is driven by the pandemic and the chip, the, the resulting chip shortage. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a, a machine builder and Germany with quite plenty of it, and you need to wait three quarters of a year to get PLCs, but your machine will not operate without PLCs, then for three quarters of a year, you don't make profit. We have customers that have shipped ghost machines, all mechanics, no control, and customer only pays, starts paying when the machine is running. So that's something that we see, and uh, this virtualization um, is basically a new application of soft PLCs on real-time hypervisors on standard IT infrastructure. Uh, a huge uptake, the, we and also the industry uh, has still some work to do to kind of make this compatible with all existing field buses, devices, drives that are in the industry. I, yeah. I, I guess I've got a question for Vlad, uh, Joseph, based upon, I guess I've got many thoughts based upon what you said, um, but, but you made this very interesting comment of, uh, of the value of automation and controls engineers, and shouldn't we allow them to be able to do everything from their iPad? Now, for anyone who doesn't know, when Vlad was a controls engineer, he had the laptop that, that had the software on it with all the virtual machines. Then he had the laptop that he did all of his video editing on. Then he had the extra laptop just in case any of those laptops broke. So so the, the question is to Vlad, of what would you think if you could have replaced all of those laptops with just one iPad and done all of your work from an iPad? I mean, to be honest with you, I'm surprised that it is not something we've had in our industry, right? Like, again, I'm not going to name vendors specifically, but I think we've all experienced the struggle of you need a different version. Once you show up to a customer site, you install that version and now, you know, three other versions don't work, right? And so you spend the entire evening that night at the hotel, either, like I said, I would have a backup laptop with a few versions or you start downloading software from scratch, reinstalling Windows, because it just becomes like way too complicated to unravel uh, what happened at that version install, right? And and that's a common problem. I think like everyone you talk to does not believe that that is a problem until they see it themselves. <laughs> and like I said, then they install a number of versions, it completely breaks and they have to just go back and uh, like it's a common question, right? Like how do you virtualize automation software so that you protect yourself as the automation engineer against that failure? And I, I think that some sites are slow. Yeah, okay. Yeah, what is it? Go ahead. So sometimes we bring our customers together and we did a presentation to a customer, I had another customer there and I told exactly that story and said, hey, sometimes people uh, need to take a USB pen or a laptop with a certain version and fly to a other country, yeah? and. Actually, I was thinking no one would believe me. And then the other customer in the room said, no, actually, it's much worse than that. I had to fly twice to India because my colleagues gave me the wrong laptop with the wrong version. Yeah, Sorry for jumping in. But what we see is the more we double click on that problem, the more suffer we see from the automation engineers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not a fun experience, right? It's something that is kind of we live with and we've accepted that that's the reality but it's not a pleasant experience it's very stressful typically you get a lot of uh how to say like pushback from the managers to get it done and so if you're spending your time uh at the hotel reinstalling software it's just not a fun uh position to be in but no definitely 
I think there's room for that. I think a couple of very large companies run, you know, those softwares on the cloud, but even then it's not an ideal experience. Like I can tell you there's a number number of problems there as well. So this is also what we do. Um, we have collaborate with these companies partly. Um, so what we do is we provide one single pane of glass to a factory. So the factory is a should be a software system. Yeah? And if you say software-defined automation, I think there should be more people doing software-defined automation, not just us. Um, and we we also I see that that you can have some IDEs in the in the, um, uh, in the cloud, but then there is no connectivity to push down. Yeah? So what's the point if you have the IDE in the cloud, but then you need to download it and then go down? And this is what we try to ease: have a connectivity and ultimately remove human error. So if even the companies that say we are only on one stack, as soon as they buy a machine that they desperately need and don't have a lot of alternatives, they will end up with different PLCs in there. Then you you start discussing, oh, should I really buy that a couple of K expensive license for only some changes and so on, or just looking into the program? And that's something that we we eliminate. Yeah, But I fully agree. Mm -hmm. and by the way, we are very happy there is movement in the industry also from the big vendors. Yeah. And uh, that actually helps us because that takes away stuff that we don't need to do. And we just help customers build a better overall aggregation system, as you would call it. Joseph, I'm curious, you know, maybe how far we are from an environment where, number one, let's say I have virtual PLCs running on a server. I have a cloud environment that I can use, you know, the most, the cheapest laptop possible to just remote in and run my IDE in whatever vendor agnostic tool that I can then push code to any, you know, like PLC from that and ultimately be able to connect to the entire facility and pull that data back and forth through like version control as well. Like what's, you know, like how, how long do you think that will take? Because I think that's definitely maybe the utopian vision, but I think it will take us some, years to first you know like the first step maybe is to get version control out right like i think that needs to be solved number two we definitely need to be able to remote into a site and not have those problems like i said with very bulky like engineering laptops all the time uh then there's the question you know of being more vendor agnostic right like being able to kind of pick and choose what your facility is running and not necessarily be stuck like on purely that environment and having the flexibility um, but I think it will take time, right? So I, I'm curious to see like what in your kind of vision happens over the years for us to get there. Um, so first of all, um, the PSC, as I said, for uh, a couple of applications and also the whole safety thing will stay for a couple of years. This is something that we see. Okay. This is just also, by the way, work with the auditors, with the certification bodies to get this through to virtualize it. There's people like Cordesis, for example, working on this, and I think they're really, really forerunners on that. Um, the second thing is what you just described is possible with our system right now. Yeah? The only caveat is currently we only have only, yeah? that's actually very big, we have Cordesis. But as you know, the automation systems are not standardized. Uh, but you can run virtual PCs on Cordesis, and the automation engineers can take a lab. Um, um, in the, next to the factory, so it's not running in the cloud, that's super important. We believe a virtual PC should be at the factory uh, and it should be on a server next next to the factory. 
you can take your whatever cheap laptop to program it and you can push down and you do not need to go to the to the facility or if you wish obviously you can do yeah? and we also put access management on top of it so get away from we have a customer that says okay i have around 15 people that have the vpn credentials to my site yeah and, and we say what well, and, and you ask us if our ui runs in the cloud yeah <laughs> you get away with this because you get to proper user user role right systems there that's possible what needs to happen to make this more um, available is that more vendors need to provide soft plcs that run on x86 hardware we've seen this siemens at hanover messe announced it with the uh, s7 um, virtual control i guess in a couple of months it's there um, and for us that's good because we provide our user more variety like which controller do you want to deploy yeah? um, mm -hmm. but what cannot happen as an automation engineer would not be getting a hypervisor optimization and network specialist to be able to run a virtual plc this is what companies like ours do we take away all that pain and make it very very simple mm -hmm. uh, so what i see to answer your question specifically which i think what the, the management is there remote control is there version management is there we need to make it much simpler and accessible and then gradually help, help people to really version control as a modern software developer would do it um virtualization is there technically we've done a lot of tests though we don't claim any real time we just show the test data yeah? and we are consistently below five milliseconds over weeks and months yeah? vendors would need to provide more uh, virtualized runtimes that can run there and there is a lot of movement yeah? we are working with a bunch of vendors that cannot be too public here i hope that's understandable mm -hmm. just follow us mm -hmm. over the next months uh, and then there is one thing and if you allow me we still have a problem in the how we build systems because the pcs got more and more powerful that means we put more and more stuff in we have customers that have gigabyte large like four gig tier portal files no one in the cloud builds such a system in the cloud you have microservices yeah and what an optimal system would look like and this is i'm 100 sure that this will happen is you would have real-time microservices on the edge yeah, like a no PLC automation. Mm -hmm. We say, okay, this is a microservice, a program it in, let's say, Rust or Go. Yeah, Python is a, would be very tempting, but there is some technical challenges in a modern programming language. And the only thing I, I do to say, because you are a robot program and the Kuka robot, for example, needs a four millisecond heartbeat. Yeah, you have a, a, a cycle time of four millisecond and the system takes care of the rest. And we build a system that takes care of the rest. Yeah? A bunch of things need to happen, but then you 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 have a couple of things that need to happen. First of all, we need more programmers that program in structured languages. Yeah? And it's a matter of fact that PLC programmers currently laugh for good reasons because they've been really proven. This basically this is low code, yeah? structured text, function blocks, sequence diagram, and so on. But more people coming in that anyhow know Python, know C, know C sharp, know uh, know that um, and then we need to think automation differently um, do we really need a very expensive plc for every single task or should we make smaller plc microservices that then 
uh, can be deployed on comparably cheap and abundant and uh, uh, and reliable and uh, mirrored, physically mirrored hardware. Yeah, because if a PC costs like 8K, you don't want a second one. But if a server that has 40 cores on it costs 2K, it's not a problem to kind of real have, have real hardware redundancy at a very, very lower low cost. Still, what I, and I would also see that it will differentiate those customers, especially in the EV and battery space, that they need just to, to kind of like, I think, like make factories like baking pretzels, yeah? They don't have the time. They are much more open to do this. I think larger parts of the industry, once they see this will work, will then quickly follow, but still, um, we are just ahead of this very interesting movement that will impact a lot of, of us also in our personal life. I And I hope you know, Joseph, let me, one last question, Dave, and then yeah. I'll let you uh, ask Joseph uh, something. Uh, Joseph, um, I'm curious, you know, also, because I think you've mentioned this before the stream, is that it's similar to what cloud providers are now doing, right? And so to your point on let's say running different sized PLCs, I'm hoping that it would almost take care of itself in a way to scale for the application, right? So for example, if Vlad wants to bring in like a very simple process or skid, I don't need to buy an extra S7-1500 just for that skid, right? I can spin up a, a very small service that would allow me to, let's say have 100 IO points versus let's say now we want to run the entire line. Well, I can spin up like a larger service that would ultimately scale based on maybe the response time, maybe on, you know, how quickly I need to get that data in and out. So I guess my question to that point is how close do you think like we're going to mimic maybe the cloud services that we see today with all the like scaling, managing traffic and making it ultimately easier for controls engineers to sort of, you know, just click and deploy those environments versus maybe knowing all the ins and outs of languages to be able to uh, programmatically spin that up. I think we would get very close with the exception that we would always, for the time being, un unless we have 5G, be hardware bound at the edge. And why? I, I did with a customer test when I was at AWS, was a uh, MES company. And we checked, can you also run real control in the cloud? And in Europe, you have like a 80 millisecond round trip time. Yeah, that excludes that that pattern where you have access to an infinite set of completely scalable hardware in the cloud for now. Mm -hmm. So, so what we see is that people would have ruggedized servers on the edge and then virtualize those, and then but then within that boundary conditions, you can do a lot. Because let's go back to that example: the server that we did our test on has a Dell server has forty cores on it. And then you could say the small microservices that maybe maybe just only do a couple of IOs, mirror them and put them on a field bus or whatever. You put them on containers on one core. And then there's another thing that is like has a, a huge PC program that runs a full line or the head controller of let's say a body and white shop that it gives the the, the, the the sequence time. Yeah. You put them on, on an isolated core. Yeah. Um, this is exactly what we are looking into with customers. And also um, in that system, you do not want to have an automation system, especially if the hardware is not the thing financially, it runs at 99%. So what we also do is we kind of do a leveling of the runtime. You can then do things like monitor. Yeah? 
you can monitor. And once you do virtualization, you have noisy neighbor problems. That's exactly, someone needs to take care of it. These things, if you look into what the hyperscalers really do, they have, they see problems other people don't see, yeah? Because they have this mass uh, uh, there. And yeah, these problems need to be worked on. Uh, we, we have uh, the luck to have a bunch of very forward-looking customers to, to, to have that. So to your answer, I think very close in terms of convenience within the boundaries of a fixed hardware for now, once we get 5G, that might change. Because in 5G, you get much lower latency times. And then you could say, I have my um, PLC in a, what, what, what uh, hyperscalers call an edge location, like a data center that's just like 10, 15, 20 kilometers away. Then you get lower than 10 milliseconds. And with 5G, you also have redundancy in the network because you have a lot of different base stations. I, I, I guess I, I need to take us back a little bit. I certainly want to talk more about microservices. I love the, the, the conversation we're having, but I feel like at some point Vlad's like, and then we just put the PLCs in the cloud and the last like 10 minutes of conversation have been, hey, we've just ripped out all of the, the hardware PLCs. And I know we've got John in the comments. I know we've got Hank in the comments. I imagine we've got like 100 people yelling at the podcast, hopefully haven't hung up. Um, at the moment being like, why are these guys getting rid of PLCs? So I, I guess kind of the base question to you, Joseph, is what is the advantage of removing the physical PLC hardware and going to uh, removing the physical PLC hardware and going to a, a server based uh, control solution? So a couple of advantages, but before that, and looking a bit at the chat, um, we are not promoting to put away PLCs. If it works and if companies are flex as flexible enough as they need to be, it's perfect. If PLCs are available, it's perfect. If automation engineers are available, it's perfect. Um, what we see is really not like, as you said, uh, uh, getting rid of PLCs. We say, hey, we do our core business with PLCs. We want to get better there. And then we build a new business and let's see how we can do it completely different. But what what are the differences uh, or the, the benefits of getting uh, away from PLCs? One thing is we're dependency on specific hardware. Yeah? And the other thing, as I mentioned, is the complexity of the system, the systems designs. So we have a customer that has, if they change one um, uh, bit in their PLC program structure for a very, 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 very expensive machine, they have six hours of meetings. And the alternative is where I worked in Amazon, Amazon Web Services pushes updates every minute mm -hmm. to a full global production system. And I think if you look at it, at it from that lens, then it makes sense to gradually see what can be done in a different way. Not immediately, but gradually. Because what we also see is, as I said, the higher you go, the more you hear, but the manufacturing system never changes. Yes, because it's so dangerous. What if it would not be dangerous? You would have microservices, you can control possible impact, and then you have a flexible, still very reliable system. And that's, that's, the, that's really um, um, uh, base principle thinking. Why does it need to be that manufacturing systems are inflexible? Yeah? Of course, there's mechanics included. Of course, you need people on site 
if something can happen. Yeah? But there is elements where you can do things better and the concepts are there. And that's what we are exploring with our customers. I, I, I like that. I guess I have one follow-up question because honestly, I'm not sure. If someone is looking to go into a soft or a virtual PLC to run it on a server as opposed to a PLC itself, are is I.O. available and reasonably, uh, reasonably cost-effective to move to everything server-side as opposed to run everything just directly in a PLC with, with the I.O. that we are all much more comfortable with? So what we do is we also not eliminating the I/O. Okay. Uh, what what um, we allow is to have that that soft PLC that runs on a server on a, on a on a virtualized core basically, communicate in real time with the level two feed bus. Yeah, okay. and the I/Os are there, uh, very normal. Uh, customers also have uh, mostly small safety loop in there, uh, because that's also better to be implemented um, in hardware. Okay. If I can, Dave, like on the, on your question also, I like it, I guess like the advantage that I see, right? And, and I'll give you a practical example. So typically a vendor has smaller PLCs than like medium PLCs than like large PLC systems, right? Mm -hmm. And in some instances, and I've run into this, the end customer wants to add, let's say a peripheral that the smaller PLC doesn't support, right? And so then you're essentially ordering new PLC waiting for how many ever like weeks, maybe days, like if, if it can be delivered, but ultimately you're still stuck kind of upsizing the hardware. And now you have this PLC that ultimately returns to the stockroom, but a, a lot of times cannot be utilized on anything else because it's a different part. So I think it would be beneficial just from that standpoint, right? If me, Vlad, I go into my PLC on the software side that is virtualized and I tell maybe the IT guy like, hey, I need to upscale this virtual machine, but ultimately I can now bring in a larger PLC that is more capable and that can handle, let's say an extra servo drive or more IO. But I think like, as Joseph said, the IO can be whatever, right? Like you can get digital inputs, analog inputs in the field, but the PLC, like the processing power itself, it would be really nice for it to be able to scale, right? So exactly what you just described takes like 60 seconds and can be done by an automation engineer in our system. I, I I like that. I I guess I, I like that. I guess I, I am also, and I've told everyone this, I am not going to be swayed against uh, moving um, everything currently behind Vlad uh, to a server that I imagine is running like right next to Vlad's leg um, at, at the moment. But but but, but that, that is me. I certainly believe that we could get to the hyperscaler opportunity at some point in the future. And if we can get to the software defined automation, right? if we can get to hardware as agnostic, we run the things that we need to run. Uh, yeah, we run the things that we need to run and we can drop whatever server that we've got. We can drop whatever switches and everything else that we have. I I love that concept. I am just, I guess I am of the 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 mindset of I need to see it work uh, more than a couple more times, but before I'm willing to commit Vlad's brand new factory to, uh, to everything running on a series of Raspberry Pis or a series of 40 core Dell servers um, as that. Um, I do want to get to, to talking a bit about microservices that, that you brought up, but first we've got some people to thank. Um, again, we want to thank Siemens uh, for sponsoring the efficient engineering theme, uh, including this conversation. 
I will say that if you guys are going to be at Automate, please come visit Vlad and myself with uh, with Manufacturing Hub and visit our friends over at Siemens. Uh, I will throw out Siemens' booth 3618. If you guys are listening to this on podcast form, it is, well, it's Thursday, but Thursday Automate is probably over at this point. So if you guys have missed it, be sure to check the Manufacturing Hub, um, all of our channels for, for daily recaps and everything else. Vlad and I will be at the Phoenix Contact booth, booth uh, 6208 on Monday. We'll be at the Festo booth, booth 1026 Tuesday afternoon. And we'll be with Siemens all day on Wednesday, again, booth 3618. And in and amongst that, we will be floating around a bunch. I know Ani from Software Defined Automation is going to be there. I know she's in the comments of LinkedIn. So we'll be sure to, to make sure that anyone who wants to learn more about uh, Software Defined Automation, you guys can, can go ahead and find that out there. Uh, beyond that, again, we want to thank Siemens for sponsoring this theme. The potential of automation to eliminate repetitive and low-value tasks is quite significant. The engineering tasks are no exception. In its report, Lost Jobs, Jobs Gained, What the Future of Work Will Mean for Jobs, Skills, and Wages, the McKinsey Global Institute found that with an eight-hour workday being the global norm, the average employee loses up to 60 hours per month to easily automatable tasks which is one third of the time and honestly just absolutely insane, which is what I think every time I have read this. So innovative companies like Siemens have been making great strides in topics for interdisciplinary collaboration, modularization, automated engineering, openness and validation and testing. If you'd like to unlock efficient engineering workflows, check out the link in the description today. Again, we wanna thank Siemens for that and absolutely suggest everyone come visit us at Automate to talk about efficient engineering and everything else. Uh, transitioning from that, I want to talk a little bit about microservices, and I'm going to throw back to one of our earlier episodes with Bobby Cole. Uh, we'll go drop the exact number in the comments, but he was talking about MindSphere, which Siemens is now rebranded to something that I, I don't remember. We'll have to go drop the, the, the new name uh, in the comments below. But, but the concept is basically, hey, we can go make modules or microservices, go publish them to the the to the platform that Siemens or, I mean, in all honesty, a number of other organizations have, and I personally love, and then either we can go roll that out per machine, per line, per facility to our specific customers, or we could go share that and kind of sell our knowledge to do the thing that we're very good at across the world. Um, I've I've absolutely been in love with that uh, since, I don't know, the, the last 10 years uh, or eight years, uh, however long I have seen that coming out. Honestly, Joseph, uh, I saw that stuff and I'm like, man, this makes so much sense. I don't know why everyone doesn't take, you know, the core of what they're really good at and put that 60 or 80% into a module and then just go sell it to the world. It's honestly probably the best marketing that, that most really good uh, integration and other kind of like niche service providers have. But, but kind of with that run up, I'd love to talk more about the microservices, what you're seeing and what you think th those are going to lead to in the future, please. So what we see is um, when I said microservices, ultimately that's uh, containers, functionalities that are deployed to an industrial edge. Yeah, in Siemens it's the industrial edge. Um, the difference, or what, what I can relate to, is currently those microservices are not real time. Yeah, there might be like data aggregation services. This might be um, uh, uh, data visualization services. This might be specific applications that come from an MES system, like scheduling applications and so on. So what I see is if we add what we have there from Siemens and other vendors. Yeah? Uh, in industrial edge applications, yeah? uh, 
another one is, for example, VMware. They also have a product where you can deploy down containers and kind of the management is really handled for, 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 for the user. If we combine this with the real-time world, we have a complete system. Yeah? It's as simple as that. We just did not see anyone handle the real-time world when we started two years ago with software-defined automation, so we built it. Yeah? And then hopefully we would have microservices in the cloud. Obviously, every company builds what's called a, what's called a company core. You see car manufacturers hiring like tens of thousands of software engineers. Why? Because they build the services they believe they are best at. Being in production, some car factories or companies say, we are best in providing a certain experience to a customer. Then they have a lot of software there. And then some services are related to the shop floor. And these services as industrial as applications then go down. Um, if we can in the future find a way, actually we are working on this to combine this with real-time control, then I think we are in a golden state where people have more options to do what they re what's really best for a business, ultimately better for their customers. I'm curious, you know, on that point, uh, ultimately of car manufacturers and the software they, they develop. And we have... Oh, I, I can, can you hear I can me? hear Vlad. Can you hear me, Joseph? Yeah, now I can hear you. Awesome. Uh, I wanted to ask you, like, on that point of car manufacturers that develop, you know, maybe proprietary to some extent software. And we had a long discussion with Nick O'Leary, who's working on open source tools. So I'm curious, you know, do you see manufacturers that create, I want to say, modules or ultimately containerize maybe some of that functionality release them to the public so that others could benefit? Or do you think it's still going to remain a fairly closed, I want to say like circle of environments? I, I really, like, I think that open source will slowly get to manufacturing, but I'm not sure that, as you've said, because they've invested so much time and effort, they will release those modules. As a I was part of the team at Joseph, I think we you changed your microphone, maybe settings, and we can also not hear you that well on our side. Okay. Oh, I can hear Joseph better now. Uh, okay. Can you hear me now better? I can hear you, yes. Yes, sir. Yep. Oh, sorry. Please excuse me. Not a problem. The fact that it's late in Europe now. Okay. Um, no, actually, there's an example. It's called digital production system or industrial cloud um, from Volkswagen and AWS. Um, mm -hmm. They've partnered a couple of years ago to bring the factory data and bring more and more uh, vendors in. I know Siemens, for example, is a partner. Many other industrial software companies are also partnering in. Suppliers getting in there. Um, big question is, would this be shared across the automotive industry or in kind of these islands that, that they have? And currently, I see it more happening within the, the own supply chain of certain automotive vendors, which brings a lot of value in itself. Yeah? But mm -hmm. um, um, ultimately, we see more and more open source. Also, in there's a, there's a company, um, it's called Open Manufacturing Hub, that builds a container management yep. open source. Yeah? We see that also in the industry. We see that people realize that you can either have a very strong vendor or you have an open community and you have complete access to the technology, both provide security in terms of 
if things fail, you find someone to fix it, basically. Um, but I think in terms of will all automa uh, automation or auto automotive vendors collaborate and build an open source ecosystem uh, and kind of share their functionalities, I think we are not quite there yet. Is I guess like with your tool, are you do you have a vision with, where you will also be a platform for somebody like, let's say I'm a control systems engineer. I develop like a neat module that allows me to, let's say, control a, a palletizing machine. And I can, for example, maybe release it for free, but maybe say like, hey, th there's this module. It's 50 bucks per palletizer that you deploy. And, you know, I get some kind of like a commission or return uh, based on what I've built. Is there a vision like that that you see uh, you guys building out? Let me answer in two ways, yeah? because obviously um, there's a lot of things going on in our company. The one thing is technically we are there. So um, everything we do in the web interface can be accessed via APIs. So you can build whatever you want. What you just said, Vlad, you can make a business out of it and then use SDA as a deployment mechanism down of these modules. Yeah? Obviously, once we can version, if we can version control uh, and decompose um, uh, automation files, we can we have access to those models and we have to obviously also have a way to store those models. Yeah? Currently, that's within the remit um, of the um, account a certain user or organization has. So that's available for, for all users that have access to look at all those uh, versions or modules. Um, and I can just say that we frequently get your question flood. Yeah, but let's see um, if we get it more often, maybe we get, we are the system at some point in time. Definitely we see the need for it. Absolutely. And th then if, if I may kind of expand beyond that, not just on software defined automation, because we are live and, and we don't want to commit anyone to anything, especially. Well, actually, Vlad and I do. It's one of our most favorite things um, to have slightly earlier th than breaking news. But we're not here to try to commit uh, you guys to to going to build a, a module or microservices uh, marketplace. I, I certainly have seen groups that make a good portion or the majority of their money. Um, by going and kind of building these microservices or building these modules. Um, I, I guess in my experience, it, it's normally, you know, an extra zero or a couple of zeros beyond what, what Vlad is saying. And you can save, you know, for 500 or $5,000 or $10,000, you can go have kind of the, the programming or the backend information uh, that one needs to collect, uh, depending upon what sort of palletizer you have. And it generally saves a lot of people a lot of time and money. I think that if we look again as we kind of started this conversation back towards typical software development right and in software development there are lots of people that make you know a bunch of uh, very niche apps very niche kind of a, a number of other things that that they they have literally turned it into entire businesses i've got a couple that, that i run on my on my macbook that uh i i am generally happy to go pay the, the yearly subscription because i know this developer spends a bunch of time de developing this particular app and it's super important to my workflow and so i'm i'm happy to go pay every month or every year for that i i am hopeful and excited that we can get to that point in automation in controls because if we can get to that point in automation and controls it means we can have more really good developers like Vlad, like people who listen, like thousands or tens of thousands of other people go do what they're really good at. 
and just focus on continuing to make their sections and subsections of code better. We could do things like instead of everyone making a bespoke, you know, data collection or bespoke MES, you know, we can go have one or two or 10 people come and collaborate. We could just go sell it out uh, in, in module form as a microservice or as, as a module. And then we can just let them continue to go make their solutions better as the vast majority of us can just reap the benefits from paying the people who are best at what they do to, to go to go down the path of doing what it is think, that uh, that they're good at. I think I fully agree with you. And I think we basically have no other choice. If you look at no. all the IT, that's a, that's a story of ecosystem. What happens, someone provides a platform, but the majority, like 99% of the value is generated by the ecosystem vendors, of ecosystem partners. And then you yep. get this mass of apps, yeah? And only then, because what's the value of an iPhone, uh, uh, Android phone? It, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's the operating system, but it's really the availability of all of these, um, of these apps. And it's a much better use of talent, yeah? because people can really specialize. And it's, it's, the, it's the time where people really drive the value out, look into a marketplace, see what, what it's there, and only spend their own time on the incremental value they need because it's not there or because it's specific to their use case. We also should not forget that humans that, for example, use smartphones are more standardized than production systems. Yeah? That's one of the problems. So, but, and I can see it absolutely. The question is, who would be that marketplace? Mm -hmm. um, and I think as in any ecosystem, the ecosystem that is most attractive to the, to the people that provide complementary products to it uh, will win. Yeah, because as you said, those people need to make money out of it. It needs to be easy. It needs to be API driven. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'd rather stop here, yeah? but um, we'll be that's very interesting the, thoughts. We can continue this conversation without going committing this live uh, to you, uh, to, to all the folks listening. Uh, but I guess kind of the, the question is, and kind of one of the pain points that, that I see on just kind of Apple uh, Android development, and we, we can kind of use that as, as a test case, is that for whatever reason, lots of people have gotten to the, hey, I would like this this free, right? So I'm looking for a solution, but I don't want to pay any money for it. or And, and I'm happy to go let someone farm my data and I'm happy to go have, I, I don't know, whatever the most ridiculous ads one can possibly have pop up in between my game and all these things, because I don't want to spend even 99 cents a month. Like I don't even want to spend 99 cents, period. I just want want this for free. And so I guess I have seen and listened and talked to a number of developers that struggle to go turn any amount of development into a sustainable business because you, you get over the hump of people paying for something. And then if you can get over that hump, most development groups need reoccurring revenue in order to make that work, right? We've got to, we, we've got to sell it for, for more than once. And so the, the more money we ask and then the, by month or by annually that we ask, we kind of just drill it down into a smaller and smaller funnel. So having kind of said that, of, do you think that we as an industrial uh, organization and industrial group are going to be able to get past that and will happily go ahead and pay top talent for the things that they're good at on, on an annual or biannual basis? So a couple of thoughts to that. First of all, I think quality really matters. Yeah. Yep. And then if you look at what's the share of automation in a car plant, 1%, 1.5%. 1 
but if it doesn't work, plan shuts down and then you have a huge problem. So um, I think the more we go into ecosystems or to SaaS in general, which we also are, the cheaper it is. Yeah. So we try to kind of build our solutions as um, uh, affordable as possible, because I think the base is really that, that a lot of people use it. And the good thing is it gets cheaper and cheaper. Yeah. On the other hand, I don't see the same, um, we do not see the same pattern like in consumer, yeah? because people absolutely understand the quality, the need for quality. It is, by the way, also a question, how do you check the quality of an app, of a function block or whatever, of a pelletizer yeah? in such an ecosystem? That's currently not solved entirely. Even if we think further, and I, I really bring it just in, once we go into generative AI and I have uh, generative AI generating function blocks for me. Yeah? How do I check if that is a valid, valid element? Yeah? So there's a lot of a uh, lot of questions there. But to answer your question, what we see is we have a lot of customers that uh, adopt our SaaS model, and we also see that people for quality in industry, especially for industrial automation, it's not that people want something for free. It's more important that you can ensure that you deliver what you promise. And I think it will bring, you know, like, it's a very interesting point, Dave, on the, like, the payment models that will arise as a result of this as well, right? And I think it will kind of shift to what the cloud environments are, right? If I want to run, you know, some tests, let's say, in my, uh, in my room and I want to get a virtual PLC, then probably they can eat the cost of that one PLC running for Vlad's 10 IO points, right? But as you try and scale, there's a kind of like a different uh, bandwidth requirement, different speed requirement, and ultimately you can scale the infrastructure and ultimately pay for more. But I think there's opportunities for kind of like both sides to scale that as well, which I think opens a lot of interesting opportunities, right? And uh, I guess I'm working a lot on the learning side and I think that one of the reasons why there's not as many engineers in automation is because it's quite frankly, very difficult to get your hands on a PLC, to get your hands on a license of a software. And if you can virtualize a lot of that, I think that there will be better uh, models uh, to, at least like there's there will be better entryways for people to get in and just try things out, just like it is on the cloud, right? There's a free tier in AWS, you can spin up a couple of services, you can learn, and all that is uh, great. But I think it will for sure change the payment models that we see in current automation businesses. Absolutely. I am excited for that. I have told this story, I don't think on this show, I, I had a mindset shift probably six or seven years ago as to the importance of going and paying for developers, right? You, you go, you, you, you go through the process, you find apps, you find other things that you like, and then maybe six months, maybe two years later, people stop developing them. And we've got version updates. We've got all of these other things and stuff breaks. And then you have to go through the painful process of finding the app that works for you. I don't think it's all that different than as we look at a marketplace. You know, we'll take Siemens, for instance, because Siemens is sponsoring this. Right. So so Siemens has as a MindSphere marketplace, as a marketplace we want the developers to continue to go and develop and update all of those things because I believe we're currently on TAA Portal V18, right? When we get to V19, V18 stuff probably isn't going to be completely broken. But by the time we get to version 21, version 22, and not all that many years, we will get very, very to the problem of, hey, if we haven't updated since V18, 
do we have to go through the process of, of refiguring out, you, you know, the, the bits and bytes that this part of code, this application that we've taken for granted for the last five years. So I, I agree. I think it'll be very interesting. I, I am personally bullish on modules on microservices because in my opinion, that's where we need to go. And if we want to help automation engineers get paid like data scientists to, to the earlier point, we need to go allow them to provide the most value possible. And that's by focusing on their niche, not running around fighting fires all of the time. It's called sneaker network in uh, some German automotive companies, like uh, people yeah. running around for two days and updating PSCs. Yes, absolutely. I think I think everyone uh, and most of the folks listening to this have, have been there. Um, if not, uh, I'm sure most of the people, if they want to, could go run around for the, the factory floor for a couple of days. Even not updating PLCs, you'll have a fairly good idea about how you feel and, and the value that, that something like this could bring to that. But no, Joseph, I think that this has been an amazing conversation. I feel like two thirds of this has been like, what does the future of automation, what does the future of efficient engineering look like? But but I kind of want to give you this as, as the open platform. What is your projection of, of the next two to three years um, as we continue to go through iterations, as we continue to find different ways to, um, as we can find different ways to, to, to for the betterment of, of automation? So back to my earlier point, uh, and also partly to the to the um, uh, to the comment section, I think we have a lot of work to be done. What we call PLC ops, you can also call it automation ops. Basically, making the wall behind flat more usable from an iPad. Yeah, having auto updates, having being able to have check code integrity and so on. Get away from the IDE. I wouldn't call it mess. Yeah, just did. Um, uh, but the problems with different IDE versions. Um, and then ultimately get an easy entry point into proper versioning that already generates a ton of value because what we often hear is it's not the bearings that break. It's not the mechanical things. It's someone flashing a PSC with the wrong version. Huh? That's what really brings lines to stop. <laughs> and then moving forward, I'm, I'm very bullish on the virtualization, but not in that it would immediately replace I think we are currently at an unnormal peak in some industries like EV or batteries, where growth needs to happen faster. I think these um, uh, industries will start quicker. Dave, to your point, you would then also have seen it a couple of times and then also will get uh, baptized, hopefully at some point in time, because yes. you've seen. And I think then we get into different models where we can design systems in microservices um, uh, in a way so that they are not rigid uh, or um, or uh, insecure or uh, flexible and unsecure, but they are flexible and secure. That's the ultimate thing that we need. And that can only work if we have more isolated services, we can call it or more isolated functionalities, we can call it microservices. That will, I think, really unlock a whole new level of productivity. Uh, in terms of cost, but also in terms of where people, the automation engineers can, can focus on. So everyone, now is the time to get an automation engineer because interesting years are ahead of all of us. That is that is very true. Um, you brought up the, the iPad again, uh, Joseph, which I absolutely love. And and I do want to tell the story. So, so when I got into kind of 
going and selling solutions, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago, especially like software based solutions. I'm like, oh, it'll be awesome. I'll just be able to have the iPad in my backpack and just everything should run on it, right? Like I'll, I'll be able to completely run the entirety of the demo on it. And uh, no, that, that was, I, I'm not sure I've ever been proved more wrong as quickly as I was with the concept of, hey, we should just be able to run everything off the iPad. Uh, I certainly work with a couple of solutions providers that I can, in theory, run everything off an iPad now. Um, but it, to, to me, if we are offering solutions and we can't run them as simple as something on an iPad, um, I, I think we need to maybe rethink some, some of the things we are doing. So I, I am very hopeful for that to continue to be uh, the future. And, and I am excited to go see some of the this hyperscaled software-defined automation. We don't have any PLCs other than virtual and soft PLCs in, in our facility. If you guys have one of those, let us know. Vlad and I will uh, will come out and uh, and take a look. Vlad will start to gloat, and then, I don't know, I'll, I'll trip him or something. Uh, so, something like that. Uh, Joseph, you also made a good point. Um, I guess I, I always like to ask for some career advice. As we look at kind of the direction that we're going uh, with all of this, you, you've got that unique background, right? You have that uh, industrial engineering background. You went to work for AWS. So you've got that, that software, that big hyperscaler background. You, you've come back to us. And if I haven't said it uh, live in, in the past, we're very happy to have you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for me. coming back. Uh, Thank you for coming back to, to our side. Having said that, if someone is looking to, to get into kind of medium term, automation or maybe looking to make a a transition would you suggest that, that they come into automation and find a job maybe as a controls engineer would you suggest they go spend some time looking and understanding at what general software development looks like because that is the future of of our industry what what would be your best career advice first of all independent of that i would say the best career advice is be humble and never say that's not my job yeah? Um, independent of, this is what I learned, yeah? uh, independent yes. of that, I think uh, it's a vertical and there's context to it. What I mean is I couldn't do what I do right now if I've not programmed a PC at any point in time in my life. And it's very hard to come from general and then really learn the basics and understand why does context matter in an industry? Why is a PC built like that? Why are systems build X, Y, Z in mining or whatever. So um, I think still the, the way is to really learn the basics of the industry, learn the challenges, and then I think be open-minded. You could also say apply first principle thinking, like does it really need to be there that way? Is there other technologies out there? And then skill up specifically on that technology. And um, I think Blood and Solos PSC did a great job in kind of killing people up. There is a lot of learning out there. There is universities building, having dual pro, uh, dual um, degrees right now, yeah? because the future will be modern software development, yeah? DevOps, yeah? Uh, but I think first of all is understand what does it take to automate a thing in the real world, in the factory floor. So to our earlier point, yeah? Spend a couple of miles on the, on the sneakers, yeah? and learn it the hard way. Yeah, I had I had my fair share of this as well. And I think because that gives you the context for the rest of your career. Um, and if you are not in a system where you kind of did something until you were 24, and then you stopped learning. I think it's it's uh, it's um, a paramount for all of us to kind of 
really really push the boundary yeah um so th that's how i would approach it yeah but never always challenge the status quo independent of the size of the technology vendor yeah, that you're working on with absolutely i think that uh, that is a lot of i think that that is a lot of, of great advice uh thank you so much for that joseph um next question is is book and in some content recommendation and i know that you said you've got both a book and a youtube channel yeah. uh, for, for us to check out so so we, we would love to hear uh, what you have please so uh, actually a book is uh, very closely tied to what we do at software defined automation what i do in my life is uh, play a piano from kurt vonnegut yeah um it's uh, yeah. science fiction and it basically uh, describes the way to a fully automated society i'll not say more it's an absolute classic, yeah. Uh, one good work did GE before he got an author, yeah. Um, I absolutely love it. Um, and everyone in our industry might might have some 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 smiles when reading it. Uh, the other thing is there is a YouTube channel from Jakob Sagatowski. Uh, he's, a, he's a Swedish guy, uh, Polish descent. He does a lot in our space, uh, and he also does it with always a sense of humor. So. If you're in this geeky space in understanding jokes of automation engineers, you might have a good laugh. Absolutely. He covers uh, a lot I of think... uh, backup for those who don't know uh, yes. Jacob. So a lot of uh, backup programming, uh, very well edited as well. I'll give him a lot of props on that side. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was I was talking with Jakob uh, in, in Hanover. Uh, uh, he and Mark were there. They were talking a lot of Beckoff and Twin Cat stuff that uh, was honestly above my head. But but it's 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 always great to uh, to go talk to other people. He has an amazing YouTube channel. I would absolutely uh, suggest going to check that out. I, I have not heard of, of Play a Piano. Uh, I am a terrible musician. Um, but but knowing that it's not about being a musician um, is 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 very interesting um, my wife is the musician of, of the family um if if anyone did not know that but this is amazing so so joseph uh, last question for you is who should reach out uh, is software defined automation hiring are you guys looking for new customers are you looking to have conversations this is very much kind of your open platform to ask the listeners uh what they can do for you how we can help you so thank you very much so we are very user focused so in direct words, every automation engineer that wants to spend more time with family than with USB pens in a plane to India should reach out to us. Yeah? Um, we are really bringing value immediately. Normally, people reach out to us, find us on the internet, start using our platform, flat to your former point, we have a free tier. Um, it's a very low entry barrier. People start to love it, bring it to their managers, and then we get into to, to a sales cycle. But what's very important for us is the, the the battering of the life of the automation engineers yeah uh, as much as i can emotionally bring this across but uh, that's the basic point yeah and we will continue to really do better in management of the plcs better in version control of the plcs and all the future stuff that we discuss um the second thing is yes we are hiring uh we have we're very lucky to have a set of great customers and it's uh growing on a, on a daily and weekly basis so what we are searching for is people, first of all, open-minded, and we are searching for in two different directions back to the career session. We're searching for automation engineers, and we have those that have been 15 years automation engineers and then say, no, I want to be Python programmer in the cloud. The good thing is they just build what they always wanted now in our company. Yeah? 
very, very easy. So if you are one of these guys, um, uh, come to us. And also people that uh, come from the uh, software side, what we do is not, I always say we are very obvious and very less genius as a startup. Yeah. But it's not easy to build. Yeah. We have a lot of cool, cool challenges. We build a system that will hold the status of hundreds of millions of PLCs at any point in time. And it's completely redundant and secure. Yeah. That's a big challenge. It's an interesting technical problem. And yeah. uh, we have a great team working on that. Uh, and yeah, we are constantly looking to have more people in our team to help us tackle that challenge. Wow. That is, that is a big challenge. I, I love it. I would imagine that there are more than a couple of people, at least on that former side of would really like to go build the things that they would like to go build uh, their entire five, 10, 25 year automation uh, engineer career. So, so th this has been amazing. Uh, Yosef, thank you so much for this. This has been great. Um, if you guys have listened to all of this, please come visit. Vlad, Vlad and I will be at Automate. As I said, we'll be at the Phoenix Contact booth, the Festo booth, the Siemens booth, and we will just kind of be all over the place. Please feel free to send myself and probably, I imagine Vlad is also accepting messages if you guys want to go find some time to uh, to meet up. Love to uh, love to go meet people in person. I will say Ani from Software Define Automation is also going to be there. She is in the chat. We will make sure that you guys can go check her out. You can also check out softwaredefinedautomation.com for more information on software defined automation um and with that again thank you everyone for for coming and checking us out hello to all of our solus plc viewers thank you guys for checking this out i imagine especially the solus plc viewers are going to be interested in some of the software defined automation things uh thank you again to siemens for sponsoring efficient engineering we'll be live with some siemens folks at automate at least once if not twice uh next week as we continue the efficient engineering conversation and lastly if you guys have made it through all this on podcast form, please go ahead and rate us five stars. Please go follow along. It helps to go ahead and continue to get more listeners. And I have found, again, when I ask people to like and subscribe, people like and subscribe. Until next week, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.